Um, when we wake up in the morning and we're full of joy, we tend to, some of us, sing as we shower. Um, as we, you know, we start to date uh, when we're younger and there's joy in all of the possibilities there, uh, we can be caught up in humming along and singing. I think as we look throughout American history, I have up here for us tonight a picture of some GIs who are singing in World War II. Some of you might be aware that in World War II, Steinway dropped all across Europe what were known as victory pianos. And uh, they're quite pricey today. Um, they were all painted in green, and the GIs, when they were on the battlefield, would gather around uh, and sing to encourage one another. And we find that that's a reality all throughout human history, uh, that soldiers would sing as they made a profession, pro, pro, procession forward in their uh, battle lines. It wasn't really till recently that this phenomenon really kind of faded away. And even now some historians would point to the Vietnam War being one where we can see a stark contrast where there wasn't necessarily joy found around music and amusement in the camp, but rather around uh, drugs and those kinds of things. Um, what I mention all of that for is merely this. When we're filled with joy, even in the midst of battle, uh, it is common throughout history to find soldiers singing. And yet, in our day, that is not a reality, both in the battlefield and just in day-to-day -day life. We tend to take music more as a form of entertainment and something we watch than something we participate in. And yet, inside the body of Christ, we still have the commands to sing praises to the Lord, to have joy in what the Lord has done, and to continue the practice of singing with great joy unto the Lord. It's interesting, I think, how the church is, if it's being submissive in its theology of worship, is preserving something that I think is imprinted upon the human heart, and that is that joy is expressed in song. So with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word as we read together Psalm 149. Psalm 149, written here under the inspiration of Almighty God. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing, making melody to Him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor of, for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. As you pray with me tonight, beloved, Father God, we come into your presence under the weight of this majestic psalm. 
and really in these latter psalms under the weight of all of the Psalter and what you've taught us over these past years. And we're so thankful uh, for your word and your sustaining grace. We're thankful that as we are forgetful people and have forgotten so much of what you have revealed through even the psalms, Father, that you still keep us, you preserve us, and Father, in the midst of the dark battle it is to walk with you in a weary world, um, you give us encouragement. And so, Father, I pray that tonight we would be encouraged from this psalm and that we would sing with joy in light of its truth. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 149 encourages us to think about singing and what it means to be the people of God. Immediately after the hallelujah or the praise the Lord, the first word is to sing. That is an impulsive, uh, automatic encouragement that the psalmist gives here to praise God. So the question is, how are the saints to praise God? And the answer is what is special about this praise composition is by singing a new song. Not a new idea, not a new doctrine, but a new song. And we'll get at the very end to that, uh, the, the full weight or the full meaning of what that um, means. Uh, but we ought to think about this command to sing a new song here. Uh, the emphasis throughout the past several psalms has been that of what we think, our theology of worship. To worship rightly, I would argue, involves deep thinking. And we have to be deep thinkers in our worship of God and our singing to Him because we can't know God apart from His Word and how He has revealed Himself through the Bible, through the prophets and the apostles. And here, uh, one of the encouragements that we have in this altar is not that we would just be stoic theologians. Not that we would just merely assimilate bare facts in our mind in a way that we could pass a theology quiz at the end of the day. But rather, all theology is leaning forward to doxology. That is, everything that we know about God should lead us to praise His name. That is a great test of theology, isn't it? In fact, if you were to ask me, Jay, out of all of the books that you have in your library, and um, there are a few, uh, which ones are most helpful? And I would say without hesitation, there's a Presbyterian brother by the name of Joel Beakey who has written in the past several years uh, three volumes, and I think there's one left. Um, I'll get it soon, don't worry. Um, uh, of systematic theology. And you think, oh gosh, that's got to be weighty. It's really not. Because the entire way in which he conveys the truth, and there are disagreements that I would have with Joel Beakey, but um, the way that he conveys the truth is to lead you in the direction where at the end of every chapter there are questions for meditation, one, but there is a hymn that can be sung in praise to God. And he makes the argument very early on in his theological framework that if we are to praise or to study who the living God is rightly, uh, then we must come to a point where we understand again that all of our study in theology 
is nothing more than a primer for our doxology, for us giving glory to God for who He has revealed uh, Himself to be. And isn't this the reality of all of the Psalter? Think about all that we have seen, all of the different scenarios of David's life, of all of the, the, the different psalmists and what they've experienced, the, the, the high highs and the low lows. I was reading a book earlier today um, by Yuroslav Pelikan, um, and now the title is going to slip my mind, but it, he begins by talking about the, the great uh, reality that the Christian faith brings into the world is a pessimism about this world, but an eternal optimism about God. Think about that contrast, and it's true, isn't it? All of the Bible paints the world as it really is, fallen depraved. It leaves us in and of ourselves, apart from the salvific work of God, the Bible would leave us in a very bad state. But there is this eternal optimism pointed at the Lord. And I would argue that we see this in the composition of the Psalter, in the fact that often you will begin a psalm with a great problem that the psalmist is facing, and the pivotal point is always when the psalmist removes his gaze from the horizontal, what's going on in the world, what is pessimistic, and begins to exalt in God for who He is, being eternally optimistic that God is going to do what He intends to do in redeeming His people. I mean, think about the themes that we have learned of in this altar. That God loves us, He cares for us, He preserves us, He guides us, He lifts us up when we are down, and He will never stop doing those things. He, in the words of Christ, He will never leave us or forsake us. This altar gives us a real backdrop of a really fallen world. And so it would seem almost out of place that here we have this, in Psalm 149, this encouragement to praise the Lord. Well, friends, we wouldn't have that encouragement if it weren't for the reality that the work of the Word of God is to reveal the person of God that we might rejoice in Him regardless of what comes into our lives. Singing provides a unique response, doesn't it? Uh, because, listen, I spent, I spent five days in a theological classroom last week. And it was a joy. It was great. It was fantastic in so many ways. But it, was, it would pale in comparison to what we get to do in this room, week in and week out, of singing praises to God. Of putting together what we think about the living God with our, the affections of our heart and raising our voice to exalt Him for all that He has done. Friends, the piano and, and our musicians are not up here to so showcase their musical talent to us we are up here to exalt God for all that He has done. And all of the different instrumentation that we find throughout the Bible and uh, throughout history that are, that are employed in that endeavor are a mere means to lifting our hearts before the living God. We shouldn't settle. I think there's an argument to be made then uh, that we shouldn't settle for worship that keeps us only in the here and now. We should always desire to be sung into the very presence of God. Well, the reason that God's people, again, 
are called to sing is expressed explicitly in verse 4. Look with me. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Our singing is a response to the truth about who the Lord is and what He has done for us. We express delight in God because He first took delight in redeeming us. What a joy that is. Well, what is it that the psalmist here reveals about the living God? And, and I would encourage you, these are going to be things that you've heard of before. But let them come to you, as the psalmist says here, in a new way. As we're called to sing a new song, let these characteristics of God always come to you afresh and anew and in, an, in amazing ways. The first um, thing that is revealed here in uh, verses 2 through 5, particularly 2 and 4 here, is that God is our Creator. A stanza re- refers to Israel as God's people in, two, in verses 2 and 4, and that we are the saints of God, that we are um, godly, as the ESV puts it. But here, uh, and, and there are conflicting ideas and, and arguments about what is really meant in these passages where God is called our maker. And one argument would say, well, what is really being pressed in on here as we wind down in the Psalter is that God is the maker of the nation of Israel in particular in that they are His chosen ethnic people. He has made by His divine counsel, Israel. And I think that's true. We can say yes and amen to that. But I believe that it does go further than that in that here, um, He also has in mind the reality of what we see all throughout the Psalter that God is the Maker of the heavens and earth, the Creator of all things, and that if we are going to worship rightly, we have to be humbled in realizing that He is the One who has made all all things. The, the, the starting point, I think it's interesting, for the Bible in Genesis is that God created all things. There's an acknowledgement, I think, throughout the canon of Scripture that God being our Creator is preeminent in all things. That all things are made by Him and for Him and ultimately unto Christ, I was listening earlier today. You ever flip through social media and you find, you know, a video and you just start to listen? And I was totally floored. This Dallas Theological Seminary professor went on this rant about how we have got to stop using Genesis. Listen to the absurdity of this argument. It's so stupid. Um, We've got to stop going to Genesis as a tool to speak against evolutionary thought because that's not the original intent of why Moses was writing. Now here is his argument. Because Moses, what he's really intending for us to understand is who the living God is and how He is loving and all of these things and he enumerates. And I go, well, yeah. He is writing that we would know who the living God is. But one of the preeminent things about the living God is that He is the Creator of everything. 
How in the world do you get from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to God's really not concerned with us seeing Him as our Creator? Talk about theological foolishness that does not lead to worship. What is, I think, couched in the entire argument is we, 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 we want to see evolutionary thought as a foregone conclusion so we don't have to debate that out in the scientific world and maybe get some street credibility from the world and that foolishness. I'm done. The psalmist says that God being creator leads to worship. And your Bible does throughout. Also, there is this, this encouragement uh, that we see God as our king. God is king of the entire universe, including all of the nations and all of the people. It is a, it, it is a cause for us to worship Him knowing that He is the one who rules and reigns over all things. And I believe as we lead into the last stanza of Psalm 149, part of what is being said is there is a judgment coming. And that judgment is coming at the hands of a king who is going to rule and reign eternally. And friends, the sad reality is much of the American church today will not acknowledge the living God as sovereign. They will call Him King. They will say Jesus is King. But then immediately what happens in so many theological shifts is we want to... Well, what we want to move from is an absolute monarchy or an absolute theocracy in, under the rule of, of Christ, which is it's, it's foolishness, but to move from His absolute rule over all things to kind of a constitutional monarchy. And Jesus will let you rule and reign in certain areas of our lives. Our call to ministry, um, the, the different denominational maybe um, preferences. Uh, we'll pray about some things. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to every word that you have spoken, we'll take up a vote on those things. We've got to stop being those people. Uh, we, if, if we're going to be true worshipers of the living God, we acknowledge Him first as Creator. That nothing exists today without He having created it. And to go on from there, sustaining it. And beyond that, He is the sovereign Lord over all of the universe. He is the one who is ruling and reigning. And friends, in our lives, as we begin to understand Scripture more and more, we have the joy of knowing that He is ruling. John, MacArthur, or John Piper has a doctrine, and I won't flesh it all out for you tonight. It would take too long. But that I think is fascinating and fabulous, and that is, uh, he, he sees that we live as Christians in the best of all possible worlds. That is, as our sovereign king rules and reigns, he does it for his glory and for our good. And there is nothing that could be better than living under his kingship. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that bring you joy? It almost makes you want to sing. You see, the reality is that the, the issue is not... And we find this in the Psalter too, that, that humanity doesn't know that there is a God. It's that we don't want to live under the sovereignty of God. We want to live under our own autonomy. 
We want to live making up the rules that will bend to our particular preferences and desires. And friends, we have a God that we can worship rightly as our Creator and as our King. And going on from there, He is also our Savior. In addition to, again, Creator and King, He is the one who has saved those who have rebelled against Him. What He has saved us from is not necessarily the world, although in some sense He does. It's not from difficulty, although I think He spares us many bad providences. What He ultimately is our Savior, what we are ultimately saved from, is from our own rebellion. And He punishes our sin in the most peculiar way. He pours out His wrath on His perfect Son that He might be the One who justifies us. Look at verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Friends, the only way that this verse can be true of any one of us, that we can be the humble that verse 4 is talking about, is through the meritorious works of the Lord Jesus Christ and the precious application of those works to our account through the power of the Spirit of God, taking us who were once dead in our trespasses and sins and making us alive unto God. We would never humble ourselves. We would never come from that group of people that don't want to acknowledge Jesus as King to being people who humble ourselves before Him daily as we realize our need for grace without His kind work in our hearts and in our lives. I think it would be, a, it would be possible to write a theological treatise just around these three realities that our God is Creator, He is King, and He is the One who has saved our souls. And to know just these three things should cause us to live lives replete with spiritual wisdom and with joy in the face of the living God. And I would even make this argument. If we don't have these three things right, if we are willing to compromise His being our Creator, His being our King, or His being our Savior, we will never worship Him rightly. And I mean that throughout those doctrines. Not just that we would name in some sense that He is a Savior, or say He is a King, or say He maybe has some creative influence. I'm saying that we are particular. The way we are informed in those three categories will fuel our worship. Somebody asked me, Jay, do you think that people who are Armenian are going to hell? Do they lack salvation? That is, people who think they bring themselves to saving faith. That they pray a prayer out of their own ability, they bring themselves to salvation. Are they saved? And ultimately, we have the joy of knowing salvation's of the Lord. It's not of our right theology. God saves whom He pleases. Um, oh, great. Siri found something on the web. Um, I was going somewhere with that. Oh, so, so the answer is yes, absolutely God can save people and they can have misshapen theology. 
But that deformity in your theology will always carry over, I believe, in proportion to your doxology. It, it will somehow rob you. Friends, it, I, let me just give you a practical. If my salvation isn't complete, and I know Jay pretty, pretty well. God knows me better. Um, I know some of my sin struggle. God knows all of it. Uh, and I come before the holy God of the universe on Sunday morning with you all. I don't think that I would be able to worship very well at all. Because the, if, if I have to earn my salvation, if my salvation is not complete and it's dependent upon me, if I have to keep a, a, an ongoing record and make sure that I'm you know, balancing out my works or, or whatever the man-centered scheme is, then do you not see that that is going to bleed over in the way that I approach the Lord? But, but because I know that my salvation is the result of my Creator, who is my King and my Savior, there is nothing that will hold me back from praising His name. My loved ones can die. My finances can fail. My health can fall away. But God is still Creator, He is still Savior, and He is still the King. And He still deserves my praise. You see the interconnectedness of our theology and our worship. I, I hope that you, that you do. And ultimately what we find in all of this is that if we are going to be a church that worships rightly, we're going to have to be a church that worships in light of a victory that we ourselves have not won. Friends, if, if I could afford it, I would buy us a victory piano, one of these, green one. Boy, that would start. I mean, if y'all think that Baptists can argue about color of carpet, he bought a green piano, yuck. But we are the victors. We are the ones that have reason to rejoice because we know that the deliverance we needed was not from some adversary over in Russia or Iran. It was the reality of our own depra depraved nature. And we have been ransomed from ourselves, not by ourselves, but by our Creator, by our Savior, and by our King. He has done all of the work. And it's interesting, is it not? That all throughout church history and all throughout redemptive history, that being the Word of God, we find the people of God rejoicing in the victorious work of God. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Can you imagine standing there at the edge of the Red Sea with some modern American theology? This is how it would go. Uh, the, the nation would pass through the waters. God there having divided uh, the, the, the waters for us to pass through. And then we get, we get done and we turn around. And as the armies of Egypt are, are barreling towards us, the entire sea closes over the top of them. And in the American economy of our theology, we would start to rejoice in, look at what we did. Aren't we great? 
I'm so thankful that Moses had the idea of raising his staff and parting the water. You see the foolishness of a man-driven, man-centered theology? Friends, people will come to you, and even this week, sadly, in my experience, have come and tried to, to level a man-centered theology. But when you, you, you may be able to see it in the words if you want to. But when you really know your Creator, your Savior, and your King, it makes no sense to read your Bible that way. No sense. Uh, and so all we can do is continue to rejoice in who he is. I don't even think I got through those two verses that I was supposed to read. Then Moses, and let's do it again. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him now if we are really to understand the last stanza of psalm 149 it's strictly speaking not a victory psalm uh, or, or song in in the full orb sense but rather it is an anticipation that that victory is coming it's an anticipation that we can be certain that the victory is already ours. Look at verse 6 with me. Let, let the high praises of God be in our throats. That is, let us sing to God. And at the same time, a two-edged sword be in our hands. Now, there are some people that come to this verse and they go, wait a minute. I thought as Christians, we weren't supposed to, to wage war or to be... Um, combative or to fight. I had an argument with a man in this church eight or nine years ago. And he said, I think it is sinful that any man would carry a gun in this church. And I literally, the response I said was, in West Texas? Okay. Um, I don't see the prohibition, but it, it, at any rate, I think that we see all throughout the Word of God again in a systematic fashion that in this world, because there is so much under the power of Satan and his lies, that righteous causes will come from time to time under the umbrella of the government where men will have to and women will have to wage war physically in that sense. Uh, one commentator uh, he defends that view by saying it is quite possible that one might have high praises of God upon his mouth and yet a sword in his hands. Somebody else anecdotally brought in the expression to this conversation of, you know, this is kind of like saying praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. We just have to qualify and be careful then here how as Christians we understand this text because he's, is he saying that we should have crusades to further the, the gospel? Should we uh, just say that the work of God is going around killing the enemies of God? Repent and believe, and if you don't, you're dead. No, that's not at all what is being argued for here. Rather, the argument 
um, is, is, I think, in approximate sense to Israel, yes, there were times they had to defend themselves, uh, and there are times that I think that for righteous causes, and there's a whole conversation to be had there under Augustine's theory, uh, real battles can be waged. But in the Christian economy, as we move forward with the gospel, it is not physical strength that will win the day. Why? Because ultimately, we wage war under a sovereign creator king who will win the battle on our behalf. Um, and many of you will remember, and I'll try to be quick with this, but the peasants' war that happened um, immediately. So 1517, you would have... Um, you would have Luther and his nailing of the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg. And then in 1524, so just seven years later, uh, we have the Peasants' War right at the height of the Reformation. And the individuals who kind of had stirred all of this up uh, not wanting to pay certain taxes and all of those kinds of political things, really thought, because of the abuses of the government at the time and because of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, we will wage this holy, just war uh, in our own might. And we'll even get, because we sympathize with the great reformer Martin Luther, we will get him on our side. They were sorely mistaken. Luther was not on their side at all. Um, in fact, he rebuked them for all of the injustice of going to battle without consent of their earthly king because he understood that anarchy would come from a misinterpretation. And in fact, we, we know historically that there are some who have misinterpreted this verse <laughs> and hijacked it to say there are times that Christians will do physical uh, uh, battle. This is one of the, the particular, the, the Peasants' War was one of the particular uh, times that that happened. And we're talking 30,000 people dead in a very short period of time. Um, a lot of suffering, a lot of um, difficulty. And ultimately, um, we have to ask the, the question, well, why didn't Luther endorsed all of this. One, because he believed that God establishes authority of princes and kings of the, the government of the day, and it's wrong to rebel against those authorities. But there's something greater here. And again, it's the reality that Luther also knew uh, that the power of the sword is not given to us individually as Christians or to the church. He understood that our weapons are those of sound argument from the Word of God. So here's what we have in the Reformation. We have a lot of political, social unrest, and if you ask, sorry if I'm boring any of you, uh, if you ask most historians, secular historians, they will say the Reformation happened because of all these social political things that are going on out here that culminate in things like the Peasants' War and other rebellions around this time. But Luther understood distinctly that there were two things going on. One, this world is raging. It is under the yoke of Satan 
and is constantly at war with itself. Our battle is to bring the Word of God back to the center of the, the gathering of the people of God and to make cogent arguments that they can understand and live their lives uh, in light of. Uh, the, the, the preaching of the Word of God is the battle cry of the saints and of the church of God such that in the economy of Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, we are reminded that the arguments not of Jay or of other pastors, but the arguments that come from the pages of Scripture are able to do what? To destroy strongholds. That is to destroy the lies of Satan. When we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, and there is that one line, there is one word that will fail him. That, that's, that Satan will be undone by one word. What is that word? It is liar. That he speaks into this world falsehood. And so our joy is to carry on the heartbeat of the Reformation in making biblical arguments from the text. And that is the way that we wage war. In fact, the, the, the motto of the Reformation would eventually come to be not by force, but by the power of God's Word. And the interesting reality of history is that's exactly what happened. To all of that being said, what is a new song? Began there and we'll finish there. We love old songs, don't we? Do you not love songs that you enjoyed when you were in high school? Don't lie. You got mixtapes or something out there. My kids, you know, when they were starting to get to the point where they were really enjoying, it's totally discouraging to me. This is totally off topic, but I showed one of them a, a, a cassette tape, and they're like, what is this? Like, you could have probably taken them to Area 51 and given them that, and they would have thought, like, this is from outer space. Uh, but my George Strait tapes and all of those 90s country, man, it's great. My wife loves when I walk around the house singing those old... No, she doesn't. <laughs> Not at all. And I just bring this up because, friends, there are old songs even in the, in the faith that we love, aren't there? Um, and, and we love in this church, I hope we've learned to begin to love old doctrine and we continue to look at doctrine that the church has held to throughout uh, church history. That, that, that is a joy. But the reality is, if we're going to hold old theology rightly, we will hold it realizing that every successive generation experiences that erudite doctrine in new ways. Uh, the, 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 the doctrine of justification by faith alone is a perennial, I think, doctrine and argument that as you trace your way through uh, the, the church's thinking, it, it becomes a battle time and time again. We, we recapture it and we rekindle that, the joy of knowing that we are justified by faith alone. And then inevitably religious movements will heap on man-centered works and it will take this ebbing and flowing. And throughout time, what is interesting is that in all of that, there are new ways of expressing our joy that God alone Saves. We can look at it biblically. Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Here are the angels over Bethlehem. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. 
peace to men on whom he favors. Um, Later, there are Trinitarian and Christological battles that are fought, and so we have in um, hymns during that time, or even you back up in the the, um, doxology, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Do you know why the church sings that? Because there's an entire theological battle, a battle for truth around that doctrine. And so what comes of it is not merely textbooks, but the church begins to sing that doctrine. Fourth century hymns, all glory be to Thee, Most High, to Thee, all adoration in grace and truth. Thou drawest nigh to offer us salvation. Ambrose of Milan in in the fourth century wrote, O splendor of God's glory bright, from light eternal bringing light. O light of light, light's living spring, true day, all days illuminating. The recovery of the gospel again in the Reformation led to powerful hymns and and the one that, friends, we could sing it a thousand times in a row and I would never weary of it and that is a mighty fortress is our God. The story is that when Luther died, uh, this psalm, if I remember correctly, is written based off of the 76th psalm and after Luther had passed away, which, by the way, he detested the idea that, that a Lutheranism, that, that a movement of God would be named after him. I think his exact words were, why would you do that? Naming something after me, worthless bag of maggots that I am. Um, but those who had come to love and understand what God had used him to awaken the church to, and that is, again, just, justification by faith alone, uh, they would gather and in their solemnity and their discouragement and their leader not being there anymore. Melanchthon, uh, his successor, would say, let's sing together the 76th. Isn't that fantastic? It makes me want to sing it right now, but I don't have the ability to lead in worship, so I won't. And then you move on into more modern church history, and we find uh, Charles and John Wesley uh, writing hymns, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, um, hark the herald angels sing. There are always theological battles that ultimately prove themselves out in our singing. And so what of our time? I find in some conversations at times that there is that creeps into this church this idea that if a song has been written in the past five years, it has to be anathema. The only thing we want to sing are chronologically old songs and I just don't think that holds weight because the spirit of God that was working in the first century and the fourth century as Trinitarianism and our Christological battles were forming the the same songs that the the same spirit that that was working at the time of the Reformation the the same spirit that we saw break forth in the great awakenings and all of those things is the same spirit that the church has today And so here's what we need to do. We don't judge a song by its chronology. And this is my entire argument. All of what I've said for this. (laughs) We don't judge songs by their chronology. We judge them by whether they are new. And that new, I don't believe, is a chronological term. I think that it has more of a, a weight of freshness. 
Does this song breathe life into the church? And that's not merely just stirring our affections. Does this song help us to reckon with theologically that we are sinful wretches, but that our God is glorious and that He saves to the uttermost and that He will continue and complete that work? Do, do we have an economy where when we hear a first century hymn and we see the words that reflect biblical truth, our hearts are inflamed and, and something that may be 2,000 years old comes to us like it's brand new? Or we look at something that maybe was written just in the past decade and it has the same theological fervor and passion for the glory of God and we can rejoice in that too. Well, friends, I, I'm here to tell you that, that, that all of human history, church history, is aiming for a day when we will gloriously be obedient to Psalm 149 and singing a new psalm when we stand with the host of heaven and we sing a new song found in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. As we sing to the Lord, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That is even in one of the songs that is He worthy that we sing here at LifePoint. Friends, I don't think we'll ever tire of singing before the throne of God the theological realities that He is our Creator and He is our King and He is our Savior. And we will not ever there either be caught into the trite conversation about the chronology of the song because the focal point of the song won't be when it's written or where it comes from, but ultimately the God who has inspired all of our doxology. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this evening thankful for the truth of Psalm 149, thankful that this psalm begs us to be theological people. It calls us to consider our understanding of your work of creation. It calls us to be students of your sovereignty and kingship over our lives and what that looks like. And Father, it calls us to have a robust soteriology, that is an understanding of what it means to be saved by grace alone and not in light of our works or merit or anything in us, but surely because of what you have done. And so, Father, I pray that our church would continue more and more and more in the years ahead to grow in loving music, certainly that we like in taste, but mostly music that exalts you for who you have revealed yourself to be.